Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The GabFest is sponsored by GoToMeeting with HD Faces. Now all you need is a webcam to turn your online meetings into group HD video conferences. Get a 30-day free trial at gotomeeting.com and use the promo code GABFEST. And buy stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and have your postal carrier pick up the packages. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get up to $55 in free postage when you visit stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Slate Political Gab Fest for June 20, 2014, the I Don't Have a Title for This Show edition. I'm John Dickerson here in Slate in Washington. On this week's show, Iraq falls into further chaos. Will it collapse? And what, if anything, should the U.S. do about it? Alleged Benghazi ringleader Ahmed Katala has been seized. We'll talk about his arrest and his trial in the United States. And finally, the Supreme Court considers online threats. Are they protected speech or something that merits jail time? And of course, we'll also have cocktail chatter at the end. And hopefully by then I will have come up with them. I'm joined in Washington by Will Dobson, senior editor of Slate. Hello, Will. Hi, John. And Emily Bazelon, are you in New Haven or are you in Vermont? I am in New Haven. Oh, I you're in New Haven. You're back. From camping in Vermont. Yes. I feel like you were. And was it a successful camping trip? It was. We roasted marshmallows. What else do you need to do to make it a successful camping trip? That's all my children need is s'mores. Right. But you could do that in the backyard. No, somehow you can't. Or at least if you did, you would do it all the time and they would die of overdose of marshmallows. Right. And they taste better in Vermont. Exactly. As regular listeners know, Slate Plus is a new part of uh, our enterprise here. And um, not only can you get things like Emily's recipe for s'mores, whether they're cooked in the backyard or in a Vermont uh, glade somewhere, but you can also get uh, David Plotz's interview with Rick Hassan, who is an election law expert, and he explains the various new voting restrictions that are taking effect in the South and the Midwest and whether they'll withstand legal scrutiny. Uh, You can hear it by trying Slate Plus free. For two weeks, go to slate.com slash gabfestplus or email David Plotz directly for the best deal. And David's email is david.plotz at slate.com. And that's his actual email address. So um, email him to get the best deal. The extremist militant group Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, known as ISIS, has been sweeping through Iraq, taking territory, setting off a wave of violence and counterviolence from Shiite militia groups, and threatening the stability of the entire country. President Obama announced at a press briefing Thursday that he will deploy up to 300 American military advisors and said he is also considering airstrikes. Will Dobson, where do we take a hold of what looks like chaos getting more chaotic? Um, well, it's a it's a bad situation, but I will say that I think that the president hit it exactly correctly at the press conference today. In um, one, I mean, you know, signaling that the United States is going to support 
the uh, Iraqi government. Um, but it's also, and I think it was really the important thing that he said was that the United States is not going to pick sides or even appear to be picking sides in a sectarian war. Um, it's crucial that the United States, whether through airstrikes or drone strikes, does not appear to become, you know, effectively a Shiite air force. Um, you know, you do that, then you only are really bolstering the sectarian war, bolstering the case that Sunni extremists are making, and by the way, seriously worrying Sunni Arabs throughout the Middle East. So, you know, right there, that has to be the check on U.S. military involvement. Um, and the key thing is really political reform. I mean, the, the real problem here is Prime Minister Maliki uh, and the lack of inclusiveness there. And so you've got to, if you are able to have a more inclusive government in place, which is something that should have been done long ago, if you were able to do that, you can begin to sap uh, energy from the Sunni extreme. And if you can do that, you can begin to sap ISIS itself. Well, Will, yes, about Maliki's government, that seems really clear. I imagine that's been clear all along. Mm -hmm. And the U.S., I know, pushed for this much earlier and didn't get him to include right. Sunnis in his cap. Right. I mean, this is obviously Definitely. not like this is news. So does the current crisis change the equation in a way that then pushes him to make meaningful steps? Or is it just too late? For that? I mean, it takes a special kind of idiot to make a terrorist movement look like a liberation force, which is essentially <laughs> what Maliki did for ISIS. So, no, I don't think anyone anywhere is harboring great hopes that that Maliki is going to see the light. Um, Maliki, in many ways, and that's why you also don't want to be in the position of essentially buttressing his government. I mean, that's what the administration is sort of signaling is that they're buttressing the government, but not a Maliki stamped government. So that's why you're going to see and they're hoping and they're looking to find a someone to fill Maliki's um, uh, shoes in a post-Maliki uh, Iraq. In conversations with administration officials, basically ever since the Obama team came in, they have always been hyper worried about any U.S. involvement in the Middle East anywhere as being easily interpreted as the meddling hand of sort of the United States and the worst of the Bush years. So I guess my question is this. How can they think that this won't be seen as basic by the Sunnis as an attempt to prop up the Shiite-led government, even though they say, yes, we're helping the government, that distinction will be totally lost if you use the frame that they've used through the whole administration, which is like, you know, we're always seen as the worst uh, right. invaders. And that's why it's critical that this effort not just be a U.S.-led effort. That's where the role of the Iranians comes in here, that what you want Maliki, and not just Maliki, but Maliki's people uh, to be hearing is the exact same thing from Tehran and Washington, which is wait a minute, we meant it, you need to do this now. It will be totally meaningless unless there aren't um, more steps, more signals taken by uh, Maliki and those around him that they actually will follow up with some meaningful reforms. The steps that have been taken in the last seven days, though, wouldn't cut the mustard. It sounds fantastical to my ears to hear you say, that's critical. That's why it's critical to have the U.S. and Tehran speaking with one voice. The U.S. and Tehran haven't spoken with one voice for 40 years. You're right. But the interests here are real. I mean, you know, really, Iran was the biggest beneficiary of the war in Iraq. I mean, no one benefited more from that experience than Iran in terms of us essentially eliminating their chief enemy on their border. So now, if the experiment in Iraq essentially explodes, it's exploding on Iran's doorstep. And these, this is this is a crucial issue for them you know, across the board. So they have all the right incentives, and we have all the right incentives to let them. And if they can experience a little Iraq war syndrome, that wouldn't hurt either. And they're Shiites, so Maliki's supposed to listen to them, right? Right. Is the country really in danger of falling apart or did a lot of these early gains that ISIS banked come from the fact that they were moving through areas that had more uh, Sunni populations that they could ally with or who would at least be welcoming to them and that once they get closer to Baghdad and get into Shiite areas that it's harder? I, no, I think it's it's actually you can never really say Iraq is really in danger of falling apart. I mean, I think that I mean it is what you said is true that the, yes they were able to to have the equivalent of a you know a Sunni blitzkrieg across uh, Iraq. Yes, that's true, and and you could say it's because of uh, the demographic makeup of the places they are moving through. But it's also true during this window of time that the Kurds have seen the moment for what it is and seized Kirkuk and taken 
basically taken the steps to making their own mini Iraq, creating their own Kurdistan. Um, you have now the real danger, a real danger that even if you keep ISIS, you know, 50, 60, 70 miles away from Baghdad, that you'll begin to see sectarian violence, uh, bloodletting in the streets of Baghdad itself. You know, who says that ISIS has to march all the way through Baghdad to ultimately win this? They can win this if just you have that type of mass violence in the streets of Baghdad as people try to settle scores. And the real losers there will be the Sunni population of Baghdad. So th- you can very quickly see this falling apart. This is th- this is one of the most delicate places that Iraq has been at any point in the last decade and and that is really ultimately Iraq's fault in the sense that, that Maliki has blown what was an opportunity, um, a real opportunity that that now is further from the horizon than it's been. Emily, what's your take on the president's role here and what he has to do and what he's trying to manage here, the balance. For him, this is a guy who was elected to office in large measure because he publicly was against this war, then uh, claims as one of his great successes having gotten out of, of Iraq. So how does he get back in if this isn't a war anymore? Yeah, well, first of all, not that it will really matter, but he has a legal problem about whether Congress, you know, when they passed the authorization of use of military force back in 2001, would ever have intended re-entry into Iraq after we'd pulled out. I mean, even Dick Cheney is saying, mostly to taunt Obama, but he's right that the legal authorization here is really thin. And then you get into the Libya scenario where you essentially claim an exemption from the War Powers Act, and it's all a worrisome additional, you know, encroachment of executive authority. So there's that technical problem, which I'm sure they'll just figure out some way to sweep under the rug. But I just this is such a nightmare for Obama policy wise. I mean, he is the president who made his reputation in doing the opposite of what Bush did, getting out of Iraq. He does not want to be engaging in this area. And yet this is going to be very hard for him to ignore. He's already taking all kinds of bashing from, you know, hawks who are saying he caused this by pulling out too early, too fast, by not forcing Maliki to do the right thing earlier. It just seems like a complete mess for him. So I'm glad, Will, that you at least think he's, you know, sending the right message rhetorically here. But I just wonder if that is going to be you know, watching the place burn in the end. Is there a space, Will, between the overheated claims of those who, uh, the hawks, who many of whom were supporters of the original uh, Iraq war, I should say, the second Iraq war, um, who are now doing a big I told you so, saying the president should have uh, signed some kind of status of forces agreement in 2011 before leaving, who said, who say additionally that he's taken his eye off the ball when it comes to terrorist threats, who said, you know, he said al-Qaeda is on the run. Now you can talk about ISIS and whether it's a part of al-Qaeda or not, or it's been even booted out of al-Qaeda for being too ugly. Is there some space between that, which is kind of the most political ideological case, and a critique of the president that says, you know, he has sold the notion of the world as one in which basically we're moving out, we're withdrawing, and if we need to jump back in, we can with a counterterrorism force or some uh, little drones here or something over there. But this this situation seems like those kind of fixes won't aren't available to him. Right. Yeah. I mean. I mean. First, to take the sort of the political side, I, it, basically, this is that's a lot of ways of saying. You know, Dick Cheney's op-ed. Um, <laughs> so, you know, um, well, I was trying. Dick Cheney's op-ed was so bad yeah. that I was trying yeah, to. There right. are others who are. I, yeah, not there are others. There are others. Yeah. But you know, Dick Cheney and friends. Um, you know, and so, I mean, look, nothing made ISIS more likely to exist in this world than the war in Iraq, and. It was Cheney and his friends who were the chief champions of the war in Iraq. So I won't connect the dots there, but there you go. Let's <laughs> let's put them aside. So and then there's the world that Obama inherits. And, and in that world, the president wants out. And the president wants out because everybody wants out. He's made shrewder political decisions or calculations than that one. Now, the question for me where this gets really murky is that, you know, by the president's own admission, yes, there are places where we can pick our spots. There are places where we can intervene and, and show modest, uh, modest use of force or influence. And the problem for me is that at least I think that he missed that in his approach to Syria, that the, the, there's a debate about the, what the United States could have done in Syria where the Obama administration decided to do 
let's just say next to nothing. And that is you can draw a direct line between those decisions and the problems we're having in Iraq now because ISIS is born in Syria. And part of the mistake of the administration was to think that that passivity in one place could, would somehow help us remain passive everywhere. And in fact, it's exactly the opposite. If you look at the speech the president gave at West Point, which called for a very restrained uh, foreign policy on, and, and basically articulated the, the view you just referred to, you know, that's a policy that basically almost no one that's a senior member of his foreign policy policy team subscribes to. You said a few minutes ago, Will, that Iraq was dangerously close to falling apart. Right. Is it okay for it to fall apart? <laughs> I went back and read this old op-ed that Joe Biden yes. wrote with Leslie Gelb of the Council of Foreign Relations in which he said, Federation, oh, don't worry, it won't turn into partition. It'll be just like Bosnia. But then I read a bunch of people pointing out that the Sunnis have no economic resources in right. their sort of quasi region of Iraq. And actually, even the even though the Kurds have oil in the short term, they're also financially dependent on Baghdad. And it made me think that the kind of, you know, if, if you're being a cold blooded Westerner, and you just think, oh, a pox on all these people, they just want to kill each other. When we went in, it made things worse. When we left, it made things worse. There's nothing for us to do here. Then you kind of Bosnia becomes such a fond notion, yes. right? Okay, uh, they'll we'll kill always each have other Bosnia. for a little while. So what is so the <laughs> we'll question? We'll have a little ethnic cleansing, but it'll all work out in the end. If you wait long enough, Joe Biden is always right, <laughs> and you know, and and the thing is, I mean, that he was right about Afghanistan, and you know, the thing is, is that yeah, I mean, I think that no one wanted partition, but partition was avoided before, and then that was an that was an argument that was being uh, bandied about at a, another low moment in what was really then still the U.S. war in Iraq, and we were able to avoid partition through um, you know the work of uh, General Petraeus and and and, Amer- and American service men and women. And we're not going to do that again. So while partition, it was not a choice. It was suboptimal for almost everyone. Uh, it, it now becomes sort of a realist option that becomes more attractive for a lot of people against just complete and utter chaos. The Kurds are going to be okay financially because they're they're securing the oil fields as we speak. Um, the Shiites will be supported by Iran, and the Sunnis they will be in more difficult straits. Uh, and is that the deal breaker? That last part is that. Well, no? it doesn't have to be the deal breaker. It just means that the Sunnis in themselves will, could be the biggest losers in partition. And that what you end up with is uh, a, a hotbed for yeah. Islamist militants that's a lot smaller than all of Iraq. And that hotbed, though, is what Obama is worried about. Yes. Essentially, that's the U.S. interest. The U.S. interest is not that Iraq become the most successful state in the region. It's just that it's able to be more stable than what we're seeing right now. And we should point out that in the regions that ISIS controls, it's going around chopping off the hands of accused thieves and making women, you know, cover themselves from head to toe. It's a law and order party, I guess. Right. Uh, It's Sharia law. Right. All right. That's going to have to do it on the first topic. But we're going to, of course, come back to this, I'm certain. Let's take a short break uh, to hear from our first sponsor. Take it away, David. This is David Plotz back in the studio. Miraculously, I am not on the show. And yet, through the wonders of digital reproduction, I'm able to be here to talk about our magnificent sponsors. And our first sponsor this week is Citrix GoToMeeting. In any business, it's important to maximize your potential. Strong communication and collaboration are key. They allow you to close deals faster, to problem solve better, to create new opportunities. And that's why you need Citrix GoToMeeting. It's the best and most efficient way to meet with clients and customers from the convenience of your computer, smartphone, or tablet. With GoToMeeting, you can meet online as often as you like with anyone anywhere in the world. You can share screens to review documents and presentations together in real time and use the built-in HD video conferencing feature to see each other face-to-face, to engage and connect. It's just like being in the same room, even when you're miles apart. GoToMeeting allows you to cut out the wasted time and expense of travel so you can be more productive without losing that personal touch of meeting in person. Try GoToMeeting free today to see what it can do for you. Visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free for 30 Days button, and use the promo code GABFEST. That's gotomeeting.com, promo code GABFEST. Thank you, David. This week in a joint raid, members of Delta Force and the FBI seized Abu Katala, one of the ringleaders of the September 11, 2012 attacks on the U.S. compound in Benghazi, Libya. He's now being held in a U.S. vessel in the Mediterranean for questioning and is ultimately headed to the United States where he will be tried and may face the death penalty. Emily... So is he a criminal? Is he a war criminal? Or is he just like a regular old criminal? 
We would like him to be a regular old criminal. Supposedly, one of the reasons it took a while for this raid to come off was that the Justice Department was gathering evidence, and I'm sure what they want is to have enough in evidence to back up their indictment, which was already filed, that they actually don't need. Katala. And that way they can question him. They can go up to the line of coercing him or maybe just, you know, get him to spill the beans. And although according to the LA Times, they read him as Miranda rights, but essentially they want the case to be solid enough that whatever legal questions get asked about the fact that they're holding him in a ship somewhere for some unspecified amount of time, that he can independently be tried and convicted. Who among us doesn't want a Mediterranean vacation in the summer? But, uh, <laughs> Why is he in the Mediterranean on a on a vessel? There was there were, the LA Times. He said he was, said he was read as Miranda rights, but then also that he was questioned before that as a part of the exemption that emergency allows you, exemption the emergency exemption. Safety. So what if they've been watching him for a year? What's the emergency? Well, they picked him up. And so the theory here, and there is a little tiny shred of Supreme Court precedent for this, though it was in a kind of loaded gun situation, almost literally, like a guy running around who had just raped someone and the police were trying to figure out where his weapons might be. But there's a little bit of support for the notion that if there is a big public safety benefit in questioning someone before Miranda, you can go ahead and do it. And this was invoked when um, the when the government picked Picked up uh, Jokai Tsarnaev, for um, for example, and a couple of other people like in the, the shoe bomber bombing. guy. Remember him? Mm-hmm. In the Boston bombing. Yeah, Jokar in the Boston bombing. Tsarnaev, sorry, in case people didn't remember his name. Particularly since I'm sure I completely butchered the pronunciation of his name. Thank you. Yeah. So the government, the Obama administration, has used this before. I was really concerned about the big exemption in the Tsarnaev case because that was all on American soil. I'm not so concerned this time, and I'm wondering whether I'm just being a hypocrite, but it seems to me that if you pick someone up abroad and they've already been indicted and they really look like a terrorist and this guy certainly fits the bill, yeah, you want to get all the intelligence out of him you can, and then you really want to stick to the civilian court system to try him. That is an important precedent. It's very much against the instincts of conservatives who are saying send him to Guantanamo, treat him as an enemy combatant, give him no rights at all. And so I'm finding myself kind of trying to figure out how to straddle this middle position here um, without complete hypocrisy. Well, uh, military leaders have said – Dempsey said that this was not a part of the – previous authorizations for war uh, that that right. gave the president authority in Iraq and Afghanistan. So well, could right. you so even name why, him an enemy combatant? Well, I mean, you could try. The idea is that if you send him to Guantanamo, this is something that's sort of justified by the authorization for the use of military force in its broadest reading where you're talking about al-Qaeda. You know, it's it's a stretch, this kind of legal justification. On the other hand, you know, it does seem like we have pretty good evidence that this guy killed an ambassador and led a raid on a U.S. embassy in another country. And he, there's just no way we're not going to try and pick him up and bring him to justice in some sort of method. And so this kind of quasi-mushy in the middle between completely faithfully following our usual criminal justice protocol and A, either just assassinating him or B, throwing him Guantanamo, locking him up, never trying him, that the middle ground looks better to me than either of those options. Will, did we not assassinate him as we might have in other places? Why? If he were in Yemen... Right. Would we have... We would have sent a drone after him. Would we have droned him? Would this have well, to do with... I, I, well, I mean, I think in this case, because of his value, because of his role as a ringleader, yeah. if there's a possibility to pick him up, you would prefer to do that. And I think you could do that even in Yemen. Here, we can credibly make the case that there was no one in Libya who could pick him up, you know? And so, and, and so that, you know, in Yemen, you know, likewise, you could say, well, at least there, there could be a possibility that someone could pick him up. The, the, the government in Yemen is, is, is uh, solidly in our pocket and, and on most things like such as this and has been more than happy to let us run the drone program there. In Pakistan, we didn't trust the Pakistani government. And so in, in that instance, we do the assassination, assassination ourselves um, of Osama bin Laden. So, I mean, I think here what we, what, you know, we're, we're beginning to see, this is, you know, this is a third instance of the U.S. essentially using this sort of method or this, this sort of uh, jury-rigged formula of snatch, grab, uh, 
uh, interrogate quickly and then bring to the civilian, uh, you know, court system, bring in, bring into the federal U.S. federal court. And you know, so I, I feel as though in, in what is like really mushy, mushy factors that Emily's described. This is sort of where the Obama administration finds itself, saying, "Okay, here's our best way to get." most of what we want. Uh, it isn't perfect, but we're, we're, being, we're able to check a lot of boxes by doing it this way. And you could argue it's kind of like drone killings. I mean, I realize this is different. This man isn't dead. But drone killings are this kind of, you know, surgical technical solution to this bigger problem of global chaos and terrorism and violence. And the Obama administration has embraced it essentially as the lesser of evils. That's, I guess, if we step back and go back to the critique of, uh, and I'll use the Cheney critique, which was flawed as just an act of argumentation, even if you believe him or don't believe him. I mean, it was just all assertion that the president was weak without making an argument, which, of course, Dick Cheney has uh, a much steeper hill to climb before he has standing to make an argument. But, Will, if you look at, you mentioned this is the third instance. If we look at what's happening in this case and what's happening in, in Iraq is there is there an Obama doctrine that this represents two different sort of pieces of? How so? Like what well, it's more it's more kind of law and order. Mm-hmm. I mean, Libya itself it was was justified on the um, backs of a kind of humanitarian argument. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's being used so much in in Iraq at the moment. That's a more of a sort of safe haven Afghanistan kind of national security argument. Right. But it could I show up in Iraq pretty soon though if civilians start dying. He mentioned it as as one of the interests we have in Iraq is a humanitarian one, but I don't I think you're right that's not the overriding one in, in Iraq. So I just wondered whether you know, whether the Obama doctrine is it's a complicated world. We use drones to kill bad guys, but we also use the FBI. We, you know, go in sometimes for humanitarian, but we only go in if we have a huge, you know, a coalition of the French uh, and the Brits. It's like the hold your nose doctrine, right? Yeah. We don't want to be here. We wish we didn't have to do this. Uh, uh, we're stuck. We got to do something. So, you know, the president, has his doctrine is supposedly, you know, don't do t- stupid stuff. Yeah. Although he says don't do stupid shit yeah, is the yeah. way he said it. So, <laughs> yeah, but don't do stupid shit doesn't get you to what you should do, right? Right. And, and I, what I wonder about the don't do stupid stuff is – I mean, that is essentially a defensive posture. It's, you know, just don't make any mistakes. And I guess the argument, let me see if I can round this back into a question, Will, which is don't you sometimes in in statecraft have to take action, which Libya was, that's risky and that might seem stupid. And it just – don't do stupid stuff seems very defensive and in a crouch. Right. But I mean I would say, you know – taking on a raid to Osama bin Laden's compound was right. doing something. Yeah, and exactly. there, you know, you, you, I, mean, I think part of the don't do stupid stuff is do your due diligence, mitigate all the risks, send a second helicopter. I mean, to me, sending the second helicopter on the uh, bin Laden raid is the quintessential sort of uh, characteristic of don't, of, you know, th- that's a signpost of like, think it through, yeah. be methodical and careful. And that's why maybe sometimes you want to monitor a guy for, for up to a year while you're gathering evidence to build a case to prosecute him in federal court. Right. So there you go. And uh, so that this is a part of a doctrine or an identifiable doctrine. Certainly an approach, right, of trying to do the best you can, figuring out who you think the bad guy is, being really careful about tracking him, just like Will said, picking him up and then making some compromises, as we've been discussing, in terms of the legality of how you handle it. Yeah. I mean, I don't. I think the problem that people have about trying to paint Obama and the Obama doctrine as an utterly passive, uh, defensive, non-lethal one is that this is also the president that uses drones more than anybody ever exactly. has. Right. So, I mean, no, he doesn't have a problem with lethal. He uses lethal all the time. Right. He just uses well, it in a different way. Well, he's trying to use yeah. lethal yeah. all the time in this targeted surgical way that supposedly pr- keeps you from killing lots of people by mistake, except the and you we know, should also note, asterisks here. He's killed a lot of people by mistake. All the grief he gets for the National Security, National Security Agency and the spying and the, and the phone records and all that is also in the service of his war on terrorism, which is an affirmative act on his part. So to flesh out your point... Will, what if if you are waiting an extra year to pick up a guy, why are you doing that from a foreign policy perspective? We can see why you would want to do it from a domestic law perspective. 
But what does that get you in the world? Well, I mean, I think that's, you know, I, one of the things that seems just ludicrous to me is the uh, critique that you're already hearing after, you know, since he's been picked up, which is that, you know, I hope the administration isn't somehow s- sacrificing the intelligence uh, capabilities and our intelligence gathering operations by taking this law enforcement approach. What, what do you think they were doing for a year? I mean, they know everything about everything about this guy. I mean, they know his preferred breakfast foods right now. I mean, so, you know, in fact, it's the military approach. And you can hear this time and again, not just from people in the FBI, but from people that work in the Pentagon, is that the military approach, the Gitmo approach, how much useful intelligence did that did that garner? Right. Whereas, uh, you know, not much at all. And, and as opposed to this approach where, you know, yes, there were there were no doubt risks, but these were risks that, again, they examine and mitigate and say, you know, there's a chance that this guy could slip away, but we're going to watch this guy. We're going to build the case. And along the way, I would suspect they got much more intelligence about him and his cohort than they would if they just you know, erased him one night. You know, before we finish valorizing the Obama administration on this one, I just have to go back, John, to challenge your point on the NSA and surveillance. It is in many ways the opposite of this kind of targeted, grim, strategic tracking because it's vacuuming up so much data about everybody. You worry about the needle getting lost in the haystack, and also you have all this concern about privacy violation along the way. The way in which I was talking about it was – if you think don't do stupid stuff is a defensive crouch view of national security. Will was making the case, no, here are specific instances in which the president has been proactive in taking measures and taking risks and doing things that are that you wouldn't expect him to do as a part of his war on terrorism. And so I would suggest that the NSA program Regardless of its technicalities and how it operates, its uh, forward-leaning nature is a part of his approach to these threats that is not well, reactionary. Certainly, yes, I mean, it's it not in a counts crouch. as aggressive. I would argue that the problems with it are not technicalities. They are – Yeah, but that's a separate issue. But I, well, yeah, that's I a separate point. point. The point I, mean, I was thinks- making was whether it's an aggressive use of the – of his administration or a reactionary right. one. And it's an aggressive. It's exhibit C yeah. of he's actually out there making decisions, taking bold steps forward, even if they are utterly misguided. Yeah. I mean, even there, and, and it's being aggressive without having a footprint on the ground of these places. You know, not to, I don't think we have to overthink this so much. He's trying to take advantage and leverage every form of U.S. power short of having U.S. military personnel be there on the ground to do it. As to this guy himself, this, you know, you know, Katala, I mean, you know, he does not strike me also as, I mean, despite how awful the raid attack was that he led, he does not stri- strike me as a terrorist mastermind. I mean, this no, guy- he this, seems kind of like a nutcase. He's like, a, he's like the Fredo, you know, he strikes me as sort of like the Fredo <laughs> of Islam, Islamic militants, you know, sort of cocky, talks too much, lives, you know, still, you know, lives out in the open, more than happy to talk to journalists. I, I don't think that to some degree they were that worried that he was about to, uh, you know, somehow disappear from the face right. of the earth. And now he's out. He's on giving the mafia a bad name. So now we'll hear from another sponsor. Take it away, David. It's Plots again. Back in the studio, the GabFest is also sponsored this week by Stamps.com. Summer is finally here, and you want as much free time as possible. Don't let going to the post office cut into that free time. Use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can print postage right from your desk. You won't have to go to the post office, find parking, and wait your turn. Stamps.com turns your PC or Mac into your own personal post office. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your computer and printer. You can print everything from stamps to shipping labels whenever you need it, and then you just hand it to your mail carrier. Stamps.com is so convenient and easy to use, you'll never waste time going to the post office again. Right now, use our promo code GABFEST for the special offer of a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. This week, the Supreme Court announced that it would hear the case of a Pennsylvania man who was convicted for threatening posts he made on the Internet towards children, co-workers, and his ex-wife. The man, Anthony Alanis, I think is how you pronounce his name, claims that the comments were were sort of reappropriated hip-hop lyrics and the product of a character that he developed uh, and therefore should just be considered free speech and not taken seriously. But he was convicted of four charges and uh, related to interstate communications and I think sentenced to four years. Emily, 
Where do you come down on this? Is uh, why I, I feel like I should be inhabiting Plotz's role as saying this is all just fine, and you can. Say I know. You I'm sorry, David's not here today. We're going to have to talk about this case again after argument, so David can defend his usual First Amendment absolutist position. I just want to tell you a little bit more about what this guy did. So he kind of mused about blowing up elementary schools. There was a picture he took of himself holding a knife next to a coworker saying basically like, oh, I'm happy. I'm looking forward to doing this. Not quite that, but something threatening. And then he posted things about his wife who was trying to leave him, such as there's one way to love you, but a thousand ways to kill you. I'm not going to rest until your body is a mess, soaked in blood and dying from all the little cuts. So here is the legal question here. The question is, I suppose there's a threshold question, a beginning question about whether threats ever can be criminalized. You could go back to that. But according to current Supreme Court law, if you make what's called a true threat, yes, you can go to jail. So who gets to decide what a true threat is? Alanis wants his own intention to be the standard here. He's saying, hey, I was just parodying Eminem. I'm just trying to be a rap artist here. And he made little, you know, satirical meta jokes along the way about how he could get in trouble for posting these things. He was willing to go to jail for his art. Yeah, exactly. So does his supposed satirical intention, does that get him off the hook? Or is the fact that his wife testified that she was scared to death of him? Is that the standard we should go by? And it seems to me that if we are going to criminalize threats, and we can talk about whether that's a good idea, but if we're going to do it, the idea that the stated intention of the threatener should be the test is just, it makes no sense to me whatsoever. And also the idea that you can call some a rap lyric or a like bad imitation rap lyric, and that means it's okay. That also I find so suspect, and yet that is very much the kind of pro robust First Amendment position that a whole bunch of law professors are taking. Um, I just think it makes no sense. This is not a position we should point out that Abu Katala claimed. That <laughs> no, although it sounds like he could have, he could have, yeah. you know, maybe yeah. he's not mad at his ex wife. Uh, so how do you – is there a way in which the law, Emily, splits this baby where you have – I mean there are cases all the time where it's sort of one person's view of things and the other person has a different view of things. And you can't take either of them as having the rule that should stand, right? So how do they, how do they normally split this baby? Well, in different situations, you have different standards. Some, Most of the time, the law goes with what's called the reasonable person standard. We look through the eyes of the reasonable person. If they thought X, that's what we're going with. Once in a while, though, you have what's called a subjective intent standard, where what matters is the actual intention of the person who was doing it, not how it looked to people on the outside. I just think in a case about threats, it is way too easy to come up with some after-the-fact justification about, you know, violent rap lyrics. And the other really interesting element of this case, and I wonder what you guys think about this, is the social media part of it. So Alanis's defense is, well, the world of social media it opens up this whole new form of communication where you can be writing for no audience at all. And so the notion that his wife could have read this and felt threatened, well, that's kind of like an accidental byproduct of this speech. It's not what he meant. I just don't know anyone who posts on Facebook and thinks, oh, this is my private diary. Yeah. John? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's the, it's the opposite. Right. So that's laughable. To me, it's laughable. But I, I do think, on the other hand, I guess that it is true that social media opens up this public way of speaking that then exposes people to um, – to disclosure, to being found out that they don't anticipate. We got to imagine there are lots and lots of people putting violent and bloody threats on Facebook, and the very vast majority of them do not get caught. And sometimes people, once in a while, the cops will come knocking about something that someone wrote that they really did intend as a joke. They didn't back up in any way. It seems to me, again, was this threat directed at a particular person? Does it seem to actually have an individual target? And then did that target take it seriously? Those to me are the important criteria here. But, you know, to just play David for a second, that's not a very First Amendment protective way of thinking about this. Right. I mean, to be Plotzian about it, I mean, the thing that, you know, on the one hand, I'm concerned and I think, you know, this is 
this case is you know coming in a context where we're all uh, very concerned about the spate of uh, gun deaths in the country and gun attacks and and you know him bringing up you know an elementary school every time we then when one of these instances occur we then go back and say well why didn't anybody read their Facebook posts you know because every time their Facebook posts somehow seem to prefigure some horrific thing and here's an instance where the authorities essentially are looking at this and say oh wait let's let's you know go ahead and talk to this guy now so you know bravo but on the other hand to to take the more Plotsian view on this is that you know prosecutors will take their liberties and it's deeply concerning to think that because someone you know is influenced by the quote-unquote wrong types of music or music lyrics, that that in itself becomes, you know, exhibit, maybe not exhibit A, but exhibit B or C in the prosecution building a case that you actually had very violent intent. But see, I don't think this guy's like being influenced by rap lyrics is really what's going on here. There are criminal cases in which I'm with you 100 percent where you have someone who's being tried for an actual crime, usually a black guy. And then it turns out he had a bunch of violent rap music, you know, on his iPod. And then that gets introduced as additional evidence that essentially like he's a bad guy. He really sucks. Let's throw him away, lock him up you know, take away the key. But this guy, the whole crime is the threat. So it seems to me if you want to argue against this, then you essentially have to say that threats should be legal, that until someone actually commits an act of violence, warning someone else that you're about to potentially kill them just doesn't count. Imagine being this guy's wife, reading this stuff on his Facebook feed, fearing for your life, going to the police and having them say, you know what, I'm really sorry, but this does not rise to the level of stalking or for our state statute of cyber harassment, we can't do anything. Good luck to you. Go live in a shelter for a while. But why can't you just find a medium road between four years in prison and nothing? So, so it, what do you think should have happened to him? Well, the so I is think that you his get sentences too long. No, that you that if the wife goes to the authorities and then they say. Okay, he has to either stop. You you have a restraining order of a of a digital nature, and the question though in that case is, what if it's not a specific person? What if he's just being randomly um, violent and threatening to say whole school districts or something? Um, well, randomly violent and threatening seems to me like it doesn't rise to the level of a true threat. That there's a way in which the specificity of the target matters here, and I think. Uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact wording of how Congress put this, but I'm pretty sure this is a statute that talks about using interstate commerce to threaten another person. Right. But my point is, why can't you tell him to basically stop the way you would the way you would with a restraining order? So I don't know whether there was a restraining order in this case and he violated it and then we got to criminalization. Maybe not. But this guy has such – there are so many posts in the evidence for this case. I have to say that if I was that wife and someone said, let's try the restraining order first, I'd be heading to a domestic violence shelter with my kids. Well, what do you think? I mean, so how does this, you know, if we can go forward to, and I know we don't have the benefit of of hearing the argument yet, but how do you think the court's going to come down on this? It's going to be really interesting because this is a court that is just in love with the First Amendment in eight million different ways, right, right. whether it's religious freedom, let's a little advertisement for the Hobby Lobby ruling that will surely come down the next two weeks, or campaign finance and the rights of corporations and unions to give freely. I mean, or, you know, violent, oh, not, I'm sorry, that's the wrong word, scratch that, or hate filled protests at military funerals, or snuff films that kill animals. I mean, this is a court that has basically said really icky, gross, despicable stuff. And lots of rights for for religion and corporations, all of that embraced by the First Amendment. And, and yet this case feels to me like it is a vehicle for pulling back and for going with the objective standard about how someone experiences a threat. I just feel like the chances they're going to go with, oh, I say that, you know, I'm just uh, lionizing Eminem here. It just seems pretty implausible to me. The one more point I would make is that the closest precedent we have here from the Supreme Court it was about cross burning. It's a case that's from 2003. It was a state statute that criminalized burning a cross on someone's property. And in that case, the court said, no, you have to have a, a specific intent requirement. They kind of walked up to the line of the idea that um, it's the subjective intent standard that matters here. So maybe they are trying to walk that back. Very good. Thank you, Emily, for the final word on this. More than enough. Fest. More than you wanted. All right. Let's go to the cocktail chatter. Uh, 
Will, what what do you have to chatter about? Um, well, you know, right now everybody is focused, at least a lot of people at Slate are focused on the World Cup, and we have uh, wonderful World Cup coverage and whatnot. But I, you know, another place that I, I would like to go for my World Cup coverage right now is um, uh, an organization that we sometimes work with on Fridays with pieces uh, called Roads and Kingdoms. And Roads and Kingdoms, the founder of Roads and Kingdoms, which is a wonderful travel website that I recommend in any case, is um, – has the founder of it is down in Brazil attending the games, and so I, one of my the thing that I'd like to chatter about this week is 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 actually just the at Rhodes Kingdoms Twitter uh, handle, where essentially through the eyes of Nathan Thornburg, I feel like I am lucky enough to be attending the games in Brazil without actually having to wait in all the long lines. Or snooze through the many minutes of soccer with no goal. Oops. Uh. (laughs) Oops. Hate mail on the Uh, way from my own children. There you go. Emily, when you're uh, not besmirching the wonderful game of (laughs) football, football, um, would you uh, um, tell us what your chatter is this week? I just read a really lovely piece in Outside Magazine by the writer Ted Conover. It's called Rolling Nowhere, and it's about his effort to teach his 18-year-old son how to hop freight trains, which makes it both a kind of meditation on this lost art of freight train hopping. Uh, And also, it's really like the 18-year-old child version of – a theme that John and I are both really interested in, and I'm sure you are too, Will. <laughs> risk. Risk in children. How do you d- sort of give out appropriate dollops of risk along the way so that your children emerges into, emerge into adulthood with all of their limbs and yet with their sense of independence and um, adventure fulfilled and, and really just beginning? So Ted Conover, who I know just a little bit, is wrestling with those questions in a really um, sweet way. And those are my fond memories of my father is jumping on and off trains with him yeah <laughs> yes yes when the sometimes the acela pulls out a little early sometimes the quiet car has too many people in it and they're not quiet you one time in wyoming and colorado you'll be glad to know also it turns out fun fact from this piece there's like a super detailed book with many many pages about how to hop freight trains in all the little spots in the united states huh we have a magnolia in our backyard that um, is now too short. It's about thirty feet high, and that and now my son and daughter can climb to the where the branches stop, and it has not grown fast enough to keep up with their risk. So now they just go to the top and kind of are bored. So we need like it's like that cow that you pick up every day to the calf that grows into the cow to add right. That's the Hercules story. Your tree needs to keep growing for them. I'm not familiar no, with that No, you didn't story. either of you get that at all. Either I told it really badly or it was completely inapt. It's exactly I must say, this, just like the cow. The sentence I was not expecting to come after that was, it's just like the cow. <laughs> it's just like the cow. It like turns the, into a cow. Yes. How about that? Excellent. Um, all right. Well, it is just like the cow, isn't it? They have a lot of cows in Wisconsin, which is what my uh, – the dairy state. Scott Walker, the governor of Wisconsin, is – in this interesting pickle. So on Thursday, it was released that there were documents that lo- local prosecutors basically said that the governor was at the center of a scheme to basically coordinate between outside groups, uh, a n- number of national outside groups, one of which is run by Karl Rove, and his own uh, – um, this was basically as a part of the recall effort when they tried, tried to throw him out of office for his uh, attack on uh, collective bargaining and on unions. The prosecutors said that Walker and his chief of staff and others were involved in coordination with a number of these groups and that that w- was illegal. But they didn't charge him in connection with this. And so the reason this came out is that um, the Wisconsin Club for Growth sued uh, saying that the prosecutors in Wisconsin unfairly targeted them for ideological reasons. So they went after the prosecutor saying they were being excessively ideological. The prosecutors responded by saying, no, we had good cause and this is what our good cause was. Though the cause was not good enough to nail Walker directly, this has now come out as a part of this secondary lawsuit and a um, U.S. appellate judge, I guess, released the the material. So you, here you have this incredibly incendiary charge, which – it's just going to kind of indictment. which is not an indictment, right? Exactly. And so, on the one hand, the charge itself is much more incendiary than what Governor Christie faces in 
New Jersey. He's not alleged by anyone except his enemies to have been at the center of the bridge closing scheme. Now, there are still federal investigations going on. But so, yeah, it's released, but no indictment. And so, you know, Walker, who's thinking about maybe running for president, uh, it's nevertheless never good to have the words <laughs> center of a scheme in your um, in your bio. Uh, so and we'll prosecutors ha- believe. Right. And prosecutors believe. So we'll have to see how the ball bounces on that one. And now for the credits, which I will do in as straightforward a manner as possible to give all of you a respite from uh, the perorations of David Plotz. Our show page Oh, don't be is, mean. Don't be mean. No, uh, there's a certain number of our listeners who, who are uh, feeling a warm glow of happiness that they are that their inner pain has been at least acknowledged by me. And there are many others who celebrate and love David Plotz. I am among them. But I'm just trying to speak to that narrow majority who has been on the verge of no longer subscribing to us. Our credits on the show page are at GabFest at Slate.com. Our Twitter feed is at Slate GabFest. Email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Subscribe to the podcast at the iTunes store. Search for, quote, Slate Political Gabfest, unquote. And then please leave a comment uh, and a rating because it helps us. Uh, unless, of course, the comment and the rating are, are not n- nice, in which case it only helps you. And you can just keep it to yourself. Mike Volo produces. it produces, might make you feel better. <laughs> right. But then you can delete it before you actually punch it through because it wouldn't help uh. us. You, but, but you would get the salient benefit of it for your own private needs. Um, Mike Polo is the producer of the show. Max Tanny is our intern. Did I pronounce that correctly, Max? It's Tawny. Tawny. I'm sorry, Max. Max Tawny. Um, a nice port. Yes, a nice Tawny port, is, uh, which we've clearly been drinking. Um, thank you, Max. And Annie Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. So for Emily Bazelon and Will Dobson, I'm John Dickerson. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.